Spirit Radio Podcasts. It's time now for our parenting slot. Pretty timely discussion that we're going to be having on screen time. The impacts it's having not just on our children, but also us as parents. There's stories splashed all over the newspapers today looking at various different pieces of research saying, uh, just looking at the toll that technology is taking on children's health, linking it to different types of cancer. You know, as I I said earlier in the paper review, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say if kids are glued to a screen for hours every day instead of interacting with their friends, with their parents, instead of playing, Uh, there is going to be issues whether it's not getting enough vitamin D not getting enough exercise childhood obesity which is obviously linked to so many different forms of illness and that's before we even go into the psychological impacts the pressures of social media all that sort of stuff but shockingly you might think okay this parenting slot today might focus on older children I don't think so looking in in the newspapers today it's talking about nine year olds having social media profiles also previously there's been research in Ireland looking at two year olds spending an average of an hour and 15 minutes per day on smartphones. This is a huge issue. What are we going to do about it? Katrina joins us in studio to hopefully help us with that mammoth task. Yeah, we seem to have started an avalanche, don't we? Because we spoke about this last week and then suddenly, you know, it would seem as if the media picked up on it. But um, yes, so what we have to do is realise that smartphones and, you know, all that sort of stuff, are n- they're not toys. And so, therefore, we should not be giving them to our children. In my personal opinion, um, a junior school child should not have a phone. And I know there are parents who would say, well, I'm out working all day long and I need to know where they are. Presumably, you know, as responsible parents, we are making sure that our children are being cared for by a responsible adult. And is that a bit of a cop out, Katrina? I mean, I even saw recently uh, in a shop that I was in, a, a big large chain, that they're now selling kind of, you, you might want to call them retro phones, you know, where they all they do is send texts and make phone calls. That's it. If I think if we're very concerned about our, ch- our children being able to be in contact with us and we really want them to have a phone, okay, we'll give them a phone like that, but that's all they can do. I suppose the next objection that parents would say is that, well, when all the other children have phones, it makes it really difficult. Does that mean then it has to start uh, when they are much, much younger? And I've certainly seen with Matthew, who isn't even two yet, because we have been, re- and it's been tough, It's the temptation is so strong to want to just use the phone as I've seen other parents use it. Um, but because we've been really strict on that, he actually has no interest in it. Yes. So you have to have. How, a, how young do we need to kind of put the rules in place? Well, I right now, you know, and uh, whatever you know, age your child is at, I would say to you, if your child still does not have a phone of their own, then make a decision, and I would be recommending, you know. Through junior school, you do not need a phone. Now, I get it. I it's mean, not we, just phones, though, Katrina. I don't know if you've seen. Uh, they're basically kind of childproof covers that they put on iPads or tablets. Yes. And they have little handles. handles. And you yes. see kids carrying them around. I mean, this stuff has, it seems to have infiltrated every part of a child's life. And is it that parents now just feel it's it's so all-consuming? How do I even start to break away? So let's take, uh, it's probably... The average parent listening, um, their child does use some sort of a screen. Or yes. Other. So how do you start again? Okay, well, how you start again is, first of all, three steps to change. We've touched on this before. You become aware of the situation. You cannot change what you are not aware of. Mm. So you become aware of the situation. This is something you need to sit down and talk to your uh, your your spouse and any other adult that is in the house that has a responsibility for your child. Okay, so I'm talking about under eighteen year olds now, and um, so you then decide what small specific, very specific steps can I take to bring about a change? And then you implement so you it. incrementally, basically. Exactly, exactly. So you decide what is it. Now, if you already do not, if you have a child in the house who does not have any personal, like a smartphone or, you know, a retrophone or anything at all, keep it that way. Keep it that way until 
you know, you can review it again coming up to secondary school. If you have older children in the house, maybe teenagers who have phones, you need to sit down and talk to them, okay? You can't bash in willy-nilly and say, this is it. I would encourage you to talk to them. If they are, uh, if they have younger siblings, you also need to talk to them about the use of the phone in the house, the way it affects your, their younger siblings. And you need to take yourself into consideration then as well, as we discussed last week, how much time are you spending on the phone in the company? It's kind of like a passive smoking thing, you know, so you need, you need to be careful of that. Okay, so there you are now. It's a good way of putting it because we understand the dangers of, of smoking. passive smoking that it yeah. has on, on children. And um, for that reason, you know, I presume a lot of people don't do it around children and, and even even the smoke on your clothes and we kind of it's not a bad comparison to make we you know if there was a nine year old and I remember years ago there was a photo of a very young child in Bali smoking cigarettes yes right? if there was a nine year old smoking cigarettes in a public place we would be horrified mm-hmm. um, and in a way what the science is telling us now that smartphone use is having impacts that you could suggest are similar in that it's impacting on their health and um, but we just don't want to accept it because it's so handy and it relieves us of the need to put ourselves out to entertain our children and it relieves us of the guilt that maybe I'm not entertaining my child enough so we can in inverted commas get on with the other things and it really does need a mind shift and prior to all these electronic uh, yokomi bobs I remember my dear beloved husband the first time of many many times sitting me down and saying the children are our first priority the house the cleanliness the shopping the laundry the all things comes afterwards because I was frequently saying because I had the privilege and it's a rare privilege it is now but I would encourage parents to fight for it if they possibly can um, I had the privilege of being able to stay at home and look after my own children but I frequently used to say I got nothing done today because the stuff on my list wasn't being ticked but my children were not on my list And what was happening was my children were being fitted in, in between all these jobs I had to do, instead of the jobs fitting in between my children and their needs. And so, as you say, it's a total mind. It is a total mind shift, shift. and I certainly had to, you know, as a as a Christian, and we're on a Christian uh, station. I really had to sit down and pray about it. And I had to ask God to help me. To be able to be okay with the laundry piling up, for example. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, you know, okay, it might offend my sense of dignity of what a real mother was like, that uh, we were having pizza for the third day in a row or something or other, and I wasn't cooking a proper meal, But you know what? Maybe instead of spending money on tablets and smartphones and apps and games and all these sorts of techie devices... If, if you're up to your eyes, spend that money on having somebody help you around the house every week or two. And so you can spend that time with your children, perhaps. Just well, a suggestion. Well, that's it. And, you know, I mean, we do spend, we do, I say, how do you spell parent? T-I-M-E. So, for example, when you are with your, your child and you're deciding that maybe you want to sit down and you want to have a cup of coffee and you want to have a break and uh, you're going to give them some screen time, instead maybe decide I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read a book with them. Now, you could say, well, I really need my space and I really need my time and everything. Take it from somebody who's done it for years. Sitting down in an armchair with your toddler or your or any child. I've had 10-year-olds sitting on my lap and more. Um, reading a story is very refreshing and it is fantastic for building a bond with 
your children. Finally, just to ask you, Katrina, just in terms of encouraging different types of play, uh, phones are a relatively new thing. It's kind of scary how quickly they've almost taken over. Children and their desire and their ability to want to be creative, to play, to build blocks, do Lego, uh, do colouring, all these sorts of things. Children have been doing that for years. Um, and I've certainly noticed by encouraging those things, and that's meant a mix of sitting down and showing and then letting letting the child pay, play independently, that that's then what they gravitate towards. And then and they're, he's, Matthew isn't really interested in the phone or the television because that's what we've worked on. But can you kind of backtrack, in other words, if a child's downtime has been 25 minutes looking at Paw Patrol or something on the iPad and you've decided, no, instead we're going to do colouring or reading or building blocks or whatever it is yes can you reintroduce that type of play and encourage it again absolutely but it's going to take time it is going to take time so you make very small specific steps and you know if if you want to do coloring or something maybe it might be a bit adventurous to go into paint and water and brushes and that so you might just take a picture of paul some a character from paw patrol if that's what they like and Monkey say, monkey do, guys. If your children see you engrossed in colouring a picture, they will want to do it too. You know, I mean, coming out here this morning, I was putting on my face and I had my granddaughter, you know, sort of, and she was smothering herself with it and loving it and enjoying it. And we had a very pleasant, funny, you know, 20, 25 minutes messing around, you know, sort of with her doing her her stuff. Is there a mess? Yes, there is a bit of a mess. Am I going to have to clean it up? Yes, I am going to clean it up. But we have had a really great time, you know, together and we've had fun and we've had a bonding time. I could have snapped on uh, something to other for her and let her sit down on the bed and watch that instead but we are forming the children of the future we are forming the adults of the future and we owe it to them to bring about situations where they are doing better all the time and take it from me take it from Bill Gates himself he never ever allowed his children to have Phones, smartphones, tablets, iPads, they didn't have any of those things personally. And they have done a survey, uh, I think I might have sent you a clip about it, where the Microsoft engineers, in the vast, vast majority of them, their children do not have any of these electronic stuff. Because they know. They know. So it is so worth it. We are not doing our children any services. Think of it as passive smoking. Think of it as handing them on life skills. Some people would say, oh, but, you know, it's so important that they develop their computer skills, etc., etc. Those can be developed on the side very, very easily. But skills like learning how to read, comprehension, learning how to articulate, how to play with other kids so they are expressing their emotions etc nothing can give that to them except to do it so when I heard we were having our next guest on I couldn't help but smile because myself and my younger cousin used to spend much of our younger days uh, pretending to do our own cookery shows because we loved watching her cookery shows on the TV so much so we used to be playing cookery um, in the house and I think it's one of the things that got me interested in cooking in the first place. Uh, you will know her very well and indeed I'm sure many of you have cooked some of her recipes over the years. She has a new cookbook out. It's called The Simply Delicious Ca- Classic Collection and it's basically a variety of recipes, 100 kind of tried and tested recipes. And on the line to chat to us a little bit about this latest cookbook, we have author uh, of this new cookbook, Darina Allen. Good morning, Darina. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Well, Dorina- I know a lot, of, a lot of children, I have so many lovely little photographs of kids who are going to fancy dress parties and uh, manage to get themselves a pair of red glasses and, and a little apron and dress themselves up and... Uh, and so on. So I know what you're saying. <laughs> we had we had great fun doing it. I have to say. Before we talk about the new cookbook release, t- tell us a little bit about. Uh, can you remember writing, putting your first cookbook together? 
Oh my goodness, I can, and I and I really did it because I'd been asked by RTE to. Uh, I think they really needed to have an Irish person doing a, a cookery program again um, on RTE, and um, I, you know, I, I, obviously the people had to get the recipes. And I remember lovely Colette Farmer, who was role at there, Colette. Uh, you know, and she said, don't worry about it, we'll just put the recipes in the RTE guide. And I thought, oh, God, people will use, lose the guide and they'll be telephoning nonstop. So anyway, I decided I'd, I would do a book. And uh, it's actually, and I really had no idea how to go about it, but Gill Books in Dublin, Michael Gill at that time, assigned me an editor and said, look, you need to do kind of 100 recipes, something, and write a little, a little bit of an introduction in front of each one. And then I tested and tested and tested the recipes, because for me it was incredibly important, and still is, that the recipes really worked. And, you know, you get one chance in anything of making a good a first impression and it was really important to build up the trust. And so it was one of the reasons why I think Simply Delicious was the series and the book was successful because when people watched the television, they bought the book, which they did in, in, in amazing numbers. It really astounded both RTE and, um, you know, Gillian McMillan at the time. And they, you know, after a couple of weeks, the uh, Books ran out in the shops, you know, they, and they actually hadn't enough paper to print, so there was a sort of hold up for a little bit. So it was a big surprise at the time. But one of the main reasons I think why it was such a success is when people cooked the, the recipes, they really, really worked. They worked and they were tried and, and tested, and people were actually yeah. able to cook them. You know, they exactly. weren't kind of out of reach for people where they felt, wow, it's too complicated or difficult for to get. Yeah. So how many yeah, cookbooks have you written since then, then, Darina? Oh, my goodness. I think um, now 17. I mean, what am I like? I'm a serial offender. And I'm actually, uh, well, that my last um, cookbook was the Grow, Cook, Nourish book. That was a, another very big book. And uh, the Simply Delicious books, of course, were little books and, and originally paperbacks. But the Grow, Cook, Nourish book was a book encouraging people, for goodness sake, we just start to grow a little bit of your own food again, take back control over the food we're eating, know how it's produced. So that was a very big and, uh, book. But this is one, as this Simply Delicious Classic Collection, it's, such a, it's really touched people's hearts. It went into the bestsellers after the first week. And I think, uh, and it's a, it's a hardback, this one, it's been all re-photographed again. And it sort of brings back, like with you there, so many memories for so many people. And it was interesting, actually, when they were re-photographing, I went over to the UK just to get the cover photograph taken. And I can tell you, they've photoshopped me nicely on the, on the front cover. There's not a wrinkle in sight. You still have uh, the trademark glasses on the front I'm, cover. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very... I'm, I'm, I'm quite fond of my wrinkles or honourable scars. But anyway, uh, but I went over and the, it was interesting. The food, um, the home economist and the <coughs> food stylist and the photographer were saying how much they loved the food. They kind of were saying this in kind of incredulous tones, because it's 25 years or something since that book was published, more actually, uh, since the first Simply Delicious was published. And uh, they said, my God, the food is so delicious, it's really stood the test of time. So that was really lovely for me to know. And last night I did a lovely demonstration down in Avoca. And, um, you know, people just, and the food, the the recipes that I did from the book, um, people absolutely loved. Again, you know, people are so busy. They're, the recipes are simple, and I've really, we've really worked hard to make them delicious. And it's all about really sourcing good quality produce to start with. The same message as I've always had, you know. And then the other thing that I love to encourage people, everybody's so busy, even busier than ever nowadays, and having to commute and all that, is to try to make time to sit down around the kitchen table with your family, at least at the weekends. But as much as possible, because even if you're only arguing, you're keeping the lines of communication open. And it's what memories are made of, you know, sitting down and having a lovely bubbly stew or, you know, a mac and cheese or, or something. And The importance uh, of, of breaking bread together, really, it oh, cannot be yeah, underestimated. Being, honestly, being able to cook, my God, it's so important. Oh, I shouldn't be saying... My God, <laughs> Radio, sorry. But Jelena, just in terms of the recipes in this book, yes. it's, as as it's called, it's the kind of it's really the hundred cl- classic recipes, timeless yes. recipes. And as you've touched on, just how you really did try and test all of these. How do you decide what goes into a book like this? Because I would imagine in, in your many many years, well, of your that career, was really difficult, actually. Well, the the, the hundred classic recipes in this book. And they are taken from Simply Delicious 1, Simply Delicious 2, and Simply Delicious 2. So you picked so your best of, your favourites from those uh, So I took the, yes, exactly. And I mean, 
you know, there were some difficult decisions and some things had to be left out. But, you know, and the other, the reason why I did this really was because so many, I would regularly get phone calls from people saying, where can I get a copy of Simply Delicious This and Simply Delicious That? And they've been out of print since, you know, for about 15 years or something now. And a lot of people would say, well, look, I lent my copy to some for some time. I didn't get it back. You know, I've got a child going to university. I want to give them a copy. And I would say, well, the only place to find them now is in charity shops or whatever, if, if you find them. You don't come across them that often. So it was obvious that, you know, a, 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 a hundred classic recipes would be something that a lot of people would like. And particularly coming up to Christmas, um, it's a smallish paperback. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lovely, might make a lovely present for somebody with an, an extra nostalgic element to it as well. So what would you recommend, Dorina? Because I'm sure there's there's the nostalgia element and people saying, great, uh, because I haven't been able to, to find the original cookbooks that I can get this one. But there's probably also an element of kind of a younger generation who sadly uh, a lot uh, don't know a lot about cooking or haven't cooked a lot. What would, what would be kind of a few recipes you would say, look, these are good ones to kind of start trying your hand at cooking to kind of just get the ball rolling and to get you passionate about it? Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you what I did last night at uh, at Avoca, and uh, that was really, really um, nice. I did the, the, the salmon riette, which is made with smoked and, and fresh salmon, a lovely little kind of a sort of coarseish pate that you can serve either as a starter or as um, you know little bites on 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 toast or cucumber or something to serve with drinks. So that was the first thing I did, and then I did a sweet turnip soup. You know, sweet turnips which people sort of think are very sniffy about and think they're a very humble vegetable. I did that and with uh, chorizo crumbs and a parsley oil or whatever, and that was lovely. And then a lovely big bubbly beef stew made with an inexpensive cut of meat with Italian beef stew. And I served a gremolata on top of that, which is like chopped parsley and, and a zest of lemon and uh, a little garlic just on top to freshen up the whole thing. And that's lovely because you can make it ahead and have it with a great big bowl of mashed potato or with a polenta or something. And then for pudding, I did the easiest little almond tartar tartlets that you can put whatever you want in the way of fruit or something on top of it. And it's three ingredients and it's gluten-free as well. So that was a... Um, an almond tartlet. It's literally so quick to make just with butter and ground almonds and sugar and then you make other little tartlets or a tart. And uh, people just love that because they're things that everybody can sort of make, you know, and, and do quickly. And, you know, it's, you, you mentioned something really so serious there in, and, and, and a, real, a reality and that is that nowadays many people can't cook at all. I mean, what are we like? We've handed over so quickly the the power over the almost most important thing in our lives to to the multinational food companies and the supermarkets, you know. And if you can't cook, you're at the mercy of other people for what you need. It's more expensive. It's never as delicious. It's never as nutritious. And, you know, the, the recent research again showed us quite clearly that the less um, we spend and the less effort we put into um, in, into cooking ourselves and, 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 our, and the less we spend on food, the more we spend on healthcare. Literally, the graph goes up and down. So that's, you know, it's such an important thing. And if I, I hope at some stage that I'll get an opportunity to write a book that I've wanted to write for years, uh, which would be called 25 Recipes That No Child Should Be Allowed to Leave School Without Knowing. And, you know, so that it would be embedded in the curriculum and we would not let our children leave school without the really important practical skill of being able to feed themselves. I mean, it's, it has to be as important as maths or geography or language or anything else. I mean, how crazy is it that now we've let two or three generations out of our houses without actually giving them skills to feed themselves and out of our schools too. And so it's desperately serious. We can't expect the multinationals to have our best interests at heart. Our health isn't their responsibility. It's our own responsibility. And, you and, know, and on that, I might just ask, ask, ask you finally, Dorina, advice, because I know you've talked before just about Myrtle Allen, the influence that, that she had on your cooking, your philosophy, nurturing your cooking skills. How do you absolutely. think parents can do that? How can we kind of nurture that, that love in our own children in the next generation of cooking? Yeah, well, you see, we can only nurture it if we have it ourselves, if we've got it from our own parents. That was the way the knowledge was passed on years ago. But in a way, so even if, this, you see, the simplest recipes can be, I mean, even I mentioned macaroni and cheese there and, 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 and so on. Everybody loves mac and cheese. Well, look, the first thing is somehow or other make it a priority to just whatever you know how to cook yourself. Just make sure that you just ask 
your children to help you in, in the sense of, look, let's have, let's have fun doing this together. And just literally as you work together and peel things together and put things together in the kitchen, uh, then you're passing on the skills as well. So I think to know that it's a priority. I mean, my mother, I'm so lucky. I'm the eldest of nine, and my mother loved to cook. And we had a, we had a kitchen garden. We had our own hens. In fact, we even had a Kerry cow for, for uh, fresh milk at one stage. And she loved to cook, and she was absolutely convinced of the importance of putting um, time and effort into the putting food on the table. Because otherwise, she said, well, if you don't, if we don't eat properly, we we'll give the money to the doctor or the chemist. And it wasn't a question of trying to do them out of business. As you know, they can't cope. Uh, but basically, with the, with the, so, you know, we were brought up to know that our food should be our medicine, not lots of bottles of pills and supplements and everything. And think of the amount of money people now spend on supplements. Uh, and they, I say to people, well, look, why don't you go, you know, go in the farmer's market to I'll buy as much organic food as you can. They say, oh, well, I can't afford organic food. And yet they go off and spend 15 or 20 quid on a bottle of supplements that could be getting from really nourishing wholesome food. You know, what we need is nutrient-dense food. It doesn't need to be something fancy. So much of the food we're eating now the very processed food is actually nutritionally, hugely nutritionally deficient. If it has 40% of the nutrients it had in the 1950s, that's unusual. So to grow something yourself and or to get something that's really fresh and good and has no chemicals in it, my goodness, you're investing in your own health and your children's health and, and so on. And it tastes so different. So whatever... It's worth it. Yeah, get lovely stuff and then just start with a simple, few simple recipes. And anybody who thinks they can't cook, just give me a ring. I'm at the end of the phone and I'll send you a couple of recipes to get you started. I feel so strongly about this. Well, Doreen, thank you so much. Your, yeah. your, your passion has been so obvious over the years. And thank you for joining us and congratulations on well, your I, new I cookbook. hope this will make a nice present for people uh, the the classic collection simply to listen make a nice present for people over uh, Christmas and, and I hope you enjoy cooking from it thank you so much well I certainly am looking forward to cooking some of the recipes it was great because the first recipe that caught my eye was a celery soup and I thought great I've got a bunch of celery at home I can get started straight away that was Darina Allen there chatting to me about her latest cookbook release it's called the Simply Delicious Classic Collection <laughs> Well, if you've ever tried to organise a birthday party for 15 eight-year-olds, you'll know it takes a lot of energy and planning if you don't want a disaster on your hands. But the same can be true when we're trying to organise things, but working with children in a church or parish setting and just trying to do something that's really valuable, which is handing on the faith, but in a fun-filled way, in a nurturing environment, in a way that kids will want to participate in. Each year, the Building Blocks Conference provides lots of ideas and input for those who are working in children's ministry giving them practical tips for ways to be able to do that and it's happening in Dublin this weekend on the line to tell us a little bit more with one of the organisers of the event Lydia Mons. Good morning Lydia, how are you? Good morning, I'm great, thank you. Well tell us a little bit about what Building Blocks is all about then. Building Blocks is a really joyful, exciting conference. I mean you've summarised a huge amount there of, of what it does and what it achieves. It brings together a lot of people involved in children's ministry in so many different contexts it could be parents, it could be children's workers, volunteers in Sunday clubs, clergy, um, and they come together and they get loads of ideas and resources and top tips and programs for running an effective program for children. Like you said, that allows children to participate and allows children to grow um, and even to lead um, in children's ministry. And uh, yeah, it's just it's a fantastic day. So, and like you said, it's this Saturday. So in terms of just what people can expect from the conference, as you say, just trying to get ideas, but also resources, what's going to be happening and who's going to be speaking? We have a very exciting keynote speaker this year. It's Victoria Beach from God Venture. And her particular strength is working with families and working with children under five. Um, but I attended a workshop that Victoria did in, in England a few years ago and it was a very eye-opening experience for me because it also focused on how we all learn differently and how we all respond differently. And in that particular setting, um, she basically uh, got us all to read a short Bible story. It was Jacob's Ladder. And then we all had to say what we got out of it, emphasizing that everyone can respond differently, even just to the verbal story being read. And then she got us to go around the room to all these different stations um, that would engage with 
different people who have different learning styles. The one that really stood out to me was this white sheet on the ground that just had these large picture picture frames. Um, and in the middle of the sheet, then there was pine cones, coloured pebbles, grey pebbles and coloured lollipop sticks. And you had to recreate the story out of those. Um, but that was just one of about 20 different stations. And what it really emphasised to me was the Holy Spirit can ignite something in children that we can't force upon them. You can't tell them it what they're going happens, to get out yeah. of it. And they were able, you are they're able to express themselves in a very open-ended way. And then as a leader, then you're just chatting to them about what they have learned. And you're getting something from them and from their own, from their faith too. So she does lots of stuff like that. She's going to be doing one seminar on family faith and faith with young children. And then she's doing a whole other seminar on Advent and Christmas ideas, celebrating Jesus at Christmas. And she's one of many. There's other workshops. Martin Payne from Messy Church is coming over. And he's going to be doing Bible storytelling. Our own Judy Curry, um, who's a Dan and Dramore children's worker, is going to be doing Messy Science. So it's science experiments that can be linked to uh, Bible stories. Um, Nikki Blair from the Methodist Church is going to be doing music and memory verses, which is in a really fun way for learning scripture. Um, and you'll just be laughing the whole way through that. But we also have a focus on things like children and mental health, um, which is a growing concern for so many people. And it will just be a really, really good kind of first aid toolkit for them in how to be proactive with children and mental health in uh, their care. And then the last one is Elka Coker from Tearfund is going to be looking at um, children and justice and working towards a more sustainable and just world and how we can um, engage children in that. Um, They're already engaged, but how can we help empower them? to achieve that. So loads going on. And it seems to me just from the line of speakers, Lydia, that you have talked about, it really is kind of a bringing together of people from different Christian traditions, sharing in their wisdom in terms of what has worked for them and and us being able to all enrich one another with those experiences. Yes. And it's all, that is exactly it. It is taking from what somebody else has learned and has tried and tested and then thinking, okay, how could I do this and adapt this from my own context? Absolutely. It's a real sharing day. So how can people get involved and how do they get tickets or sign up? So uh, the Eventbrite page is still open. So if you go on to Eventbrite and just search for Building Blocks 2018, you can book there. Um, you can contact me at registration at buildingblocks.ie. Um, and just email me and get information there. But they're the, they're the two best ways at this point to, to get involved. And it's in St. Andrews in Booterstown. Um, and it's from half nine to four on Saturday. So it would be great. Um, great to see more people there. And it would be fair to say, Lydia, just to really highlight to people, of course, people might be listening that are already involved in children's ministry, but you might also have somebody involved in their local church or a parish that um, they don't have a children's ministry team. That would be a good opportunity for someone like that to just go along to see what can be done and to get ideas as well. Yes, and, and more and more we are working with people who don't have a, a, a children's a, a set aside children's ministry, but if you know if you engage with children or families, or you just are based in a community where children exist, <laughs> this conference is for you. Great stuff, Lydia. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. It sounds like it's going to be a great event. That was Lydia Mons there talking about the Building Blocks Training Conference, which is all about children's ministry, and it's taking place at St Andrew's School in Brudestown on the 10th of November. That's this Saturday from half nine until four o'clock. It's a very serious issue that I feel isn't talked about enough in society and that is about the availability and consumption of pornography which has changed so dramatically because of course of the growth of the internet and I think attitudes in many ways have softened to the dangers of pornography for individuals and society. We're kind of burying our heads in the sand as to the impact that this is going to have on especially young people who nowadays are accessing pornography at a younger and younger age. Well, one group that has done much to communicate the latest scientific research on the impact of pornography is called Fight the New Drug. And earlier this week, Spirit Radio's Steve Johnson cut off with their CEO, Clay Olson. And this is the chat that they had. So first of all, Clay, your website says it started as a few college kids with an idea. So tell us about yourself and Fight the New Drug. Yeah, so um, we were... I, I suppose fairly typical college students, uh, particularly millennial college students, wanting to make a dent in the world, wanting to make our mark, and 
And uh, we were very driven by wanting to do something that, that we felt mattered and helped people. And, and uh, while in college, we observed and witnessed the, the challenges that our generation faced with regard to the subject of pornography. And we noticed that it was having a profound impact and it was something that, that so many people were struggling with. And it was, it was becoming more and more prevalent and available. And uh, that led us down this path of exploring uh, and you know looking into the research as to what evidence uh, was there to suggest maybe some potential risks or challenges or, or harms of pornography. And, and uh, as, as we did that, we, did, we stumbled across what we felt was uh, quite a bit of research and quite a bit of uh, literature, peer-reviewed literature. And today there's you know, significantly more than was available at that time, but we still felt it was enough to, to want to get that into the hands of, of uh, our peers and uh, the younger generation. So uh, naively, we <laughs> kind of just said, well, sure, why not? Why don't we take on this incredibly daunting uh, subject and uh, try to, you know, package some content material that would uh, resonate with a younger demographic and help people uh, understand the potential risks. That's kind of how it all began. So maybe you can just, I suppose it's called fight the new drug. In what way is it new? Are the consumption of pornography new compared to, say, 10 or 20 years ago? Well, things have completely shifted. Of course, pornography has been around for a very, very long time. However, you know, to compare what was available even 20 years ago to what is available today uh, would be uh, similar to comparing, uh, I don't know, a, a baby kitten to a saber-toothed tiger with lasers or something. Just a completely different story. And the, the format through which we view it, the content, the nature of it, the accessibility of it, has all shifted so profoundly that this is a new challenge that we face today, unlike the childhood of many parents today. This is a new challenge, and we don't have the luxury to pretend it doesn't exist or pretend it's, it's not there or, or kind of dismiss it as, oh, it was, it's no big deal. It was around when I was a kid. This is, this is very new, and, and so much research has come out to help us understand just how potentially addictive this can be for many people, how it can lead to compulsive patterns and even addiction for many. And so for those reasons, we kind of chose the name Fight the New Drug uh, in an effort to shed light on the new challenges that we face, also to shed light on the fact that we now know through over 40 neurological studies in the last decade that have come out helping us understand that this is very much a concern for not only individuals but relationships and also our society. So you've mentioned that um, three sort of main areas that through your research you talk about on your website, the cause for concern about pornography. Would you mind just briefly talking through those three main headings? Yes, so the research is helping us understand that pornography is impacting us in three main ways, uh, individually, relationally, and societally. And we frame that, uh, when we talk to young people, we frame that in brain, heart, and world. And so when it comes to the brain, and this is a, the area of research that is uh, the most recent, um, we have so many uh, studies coming out from Japan, from Cambridge University in the U.K., to uh, in the United States, so many studies and so many neuroscientists and neurosurgeons uh, coming out, looking at the data, looking at the research, and discovering how pornography is very similar to uh, other drugs as it relates to the brain. Uh, what we're discovering is that when it comes to the brain, addiction is addiction is addiction. Uh, the body will manifest different types of addictions very differently, but when it comes to the brain, the same uh, compulsive patterns and the same re rewiring process occurs. Uh, which will lead an individual to need more, more frequently, in a more extreme or hardcore version, just to feel a level of normality. Um, and for those reasons, uh, you know, a lot of individuals no longer feel satisfied or, uh, with what they used to consume, and they need more and more frequently in a more extreme version, leading them to, in some cases, very harmful uh, um, and degrading and damaging forms of pornography and in some cases even legal forms of pornography. So we know that this can have an escalation effect. It can have a numbing to previous content and an escalation to new and more novel content uh, for individuals. And of course that's going to have profound impacts on how it impacts relationships. Uh, we now know through the research that pornography is impacting what we love, how much we love, how we think about those we love, and how we even express love. 
And uh, for those reasons, many relationships are uh, challenged or strained when pornography consumption is a regular part of uh, either party's diet. Uh, On that, Clay, there would be some in the pornography industry who would argue that it helps relationships. Um, mm -hmm. Does that stand up to the research? No, so the... um, you know, there are some research articles that have come out indicating some uh, temporary and uh, short-term benefit to, to bringing in, particularly to a relationship that is maybe stifled or looking for some, you know, uh, some spark to re-energize a relationship. Pornography in a short-term uh, study has been shown to kind of increase that level of, of excitement and arousal within a relationship. However, all the longitudinal studies, meaning long-term studies that have been conducted around that topic have shown just the opposite, that individuals that consume pornography on a regular basis actually end up preferring the pixels to people. They end up preferring to to an actual relationship because, uh, you know, pornography never says no. It's always new. It doesn't have a period. It doesn't have weird in-laws. It's always willing to go to satisfy only your needs and, and not need to be satisfied itself. So, it, it really has a devastating effect to real, intimate, and, and loving relationships over time, and that's what the literature is showing. Okay, then you also talk about uh, the effect of, of pornography on society, and as you say, as you say to people, the world. Uh, what have you found there? What we're discovering, and we, we've discovered this not only through some studies that have come out, but but through our own experiences, we have received literally hundreds of thousands since this point over the years, perhaps over a million messages from individuals around the world uh, telling us their stories. And a good handful of those are going to be individuals that have been participants in the industry. We had a woman uh, tell us uh, how pornography was made uh, of her, and and the study leader confirmed that over 50% of those being trafficked, being forced uh, through uh, into the sex trade against their wills through forced fraud or, fraud or coercion, uh, that uh, pornography was made of those individuals uh, for the intent of selling them to mainstream sites. Uh, one woman told us uh, that uh, there was a camera pointed, uh, sorry, a gun pointed off camera pointed at her head, telling her that if she didn't make it look consensual and that she was enjoying and agreeing to it, that they would kill her. And so there's this, there's this mask that is worn uh, by the industry, kind of depicting many of these performers as uh, as, as agreeing to it, that wanting it, uh, that, that it was a career decision, when in fact, in many cases, not all, of course, but in many cases, more than we'd like to uh, believe, these women are being forced against their wills, um, sometimes at gunpoint and other times through uh, force of other kinds, uh, monetary force or uh, coercion of other nature that propels them into uh, you know, fulfilling these responsibilities. Most people, if they knew what was really occurring in that regard, they would kind of step back and say, you know what, hold on. You know, when we find out that uh, sneakers are made with child labor overseas, we, we kind of stand up and make uh, decisions around that. We, we collectively, the consumer dollar, we decide that, you know what, we're not going to buy from that, that company uh, in an effort to kind of make a point that we don't support that type of behavior, we don't support that type of labor. And it's time that we as a society start to uh, have that same mentality with regard to uh, the pornography that's being consumed. This fuels the demand for things like trafficking to even exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pornography is a, a major contributor to uh, a, a lot of societal ills that we, that we face, including the detriment of, of the family unit. So it is having an impact on our culture yeah. at large. Clay, your movement is called Fight the New Drug. Now, many would have the impression that this is an unstoppable wave, that pornography today, it bypasses borders, it bypasses parental controls and other kind of traditional societal controls. It passes, you know, it bypasses your front door. Um, so is it a fight worth fighting? Is it a winnable fight? I love that question, um, and um, I'll answer it quickly and think absolutely. Um, and uh, not just in theory. Uh, we, the idea that we can create change, that we can actually shift um, societal norms on this topic isn't just some wouldn't it be cool if. This is actually happening in cultures and communities around the world uh, as individuals start to wake up to the real challenges and real harmful effects of pornography and start to make decisions around that. Uh, for so long, this content grew in its harm 
uh, and and its influence on our society. And that starts to change our attitude and perception, thinking it's fine, it's no big deal, uh, you know, get with the times, and that has a profound impact on our overarching global, uh, you know, culture. Um, but as we individually, and it starts with us individually, start to recognize these challenges and start opening our mouths to change the conversation around it, you wouldn't believe how many young people from around the world are kind of putting their fists in the air saying, we can do this, we need to do better, we can do better for the improvement of not only our lives and our relationships in our society, but also for those that, you know, to come. Yeah. And uh, I'm inspired by so many individuals uh, waking up to this. And it's not just individuals. We're seeing governments starting to kind of take notes and uh, starting to pass legislation and resolutions around pornography. And we're starting to see countries doing this. We're starting to see celebrities start talking up on this. Uh, we find ourselves in a very similar position as we, we once were with other uh, issues that uh, we were uh, oblivious to at the time. And, and we've since moved in more healthy directions around uh, other challenges like tobacco and like cocaine and heroin. And today we're in a similar learning experience societally around this topic of pornography. But I believe that the momentum is starting to shift. It's a, it's a massive challenge, but the momentum is starting to shift. You also have a, a campaign called Hashtag No Porn November. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, so every year we, we have a, this is a fifth annual No Porn November campaign. Um, and this is a, a month where we not only provide challenges to those that follow us, our fighters, challenges like you know, you know abstaining from pornography for a month, and see what happens, see how you feel, see how that improves different aspects of your life. We also have different challenges that people can engage in, and then we release a lot of new content material this month. It's kind of our it's our largest campaign of the year. This year, we're actually going to be releasing a three-part mini-doc series uh, addressing the harmful effects of pornography on the individuals, on brain, on uh, relationships, on the heart, and uh, society and the world, and a number of other things uh, that we're, we've been working on for almost, you know, for years in some cases. Um, and so it's a, it's a fun month to kind of engage and become uh, a part of the movement and join uh, fighters from all over the world to help change the conversation on this subject and, and move our society in a better direction. Clay, um, I'm delighted that you're going to be talking to us again about some of these strategies. But in the meantime, where can people find out more about your, your studies and the resources you have at Fight the New Drug? Well, I would just encourage people to go to fightthenewdrug.org uh, to learn more about uh, the research. And if they're really interested in the peer review research, they can go to truthaboutporn.org. Uh, both websites are, are things that we've put out there that uh, are helping people get more informed and uh, be able to join a movement for real love and real connection. Clay Olson, CEO of Fight the New Drug, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you. A very informative and illuminating chat there that Steve had with Clay and those websites again are fightthenewdrug.org and truthaboutporn.org and I think it's our responsibility really to be, we need to talk about this openly, we need to talk about it honestly and we need to talk about how we can tackle the issue of pornography um, as well, how we can do it together uh, in, in our society and in our culture and we need to talk, we really, really need to, because the reason that the pornography industry thrives is because of secrecy and uh, the shame that is connected to it so we need to stand up and say this is having a really negative impact and what can we do um, to be able to combat that One of the buzzwords at the moment is mindfulness but are we recreating the wheel here or does mindfulness and authentic mindfulness as I like to think of it actually have its roots in Christian prayer? Of course we live in such a busy world with endless sources of information and things to distract us whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook and I think it can be hard for people to remember to stop and to breathe and remember that we're human beings not human doings. Well on the line to talk to us a little bit about her thoughts on mindfulness and how we can connect up this idea of being more mindful with our prayer life and with our faith we have award-winning journalist Susan Brinkman. Good morning to you how are you? I'm just fine, and good, good afternoon, I should say, to you. So, Susan, first of all, tell us a little bit about your kind of definition of mindfulness. What is it exactly? Well, mindfulness is actually um, it's a means of controlling your thoughts by maintaining awareness and focus on the present moment, and that's usually accomplished through some kind of meditation. That's the mindfulness that's so popular today. 
And that's, that's exactly what it is. And in terms of just looking at mindfulness from a Christian perspective, I personally find it quite frustrating. Um, certainly here in Ireland, it is a real buzzword. There's courses, they're teaching it in schools. Um, but the core principle of, of stopping, of breathing, of having silence, uh, it seems to me, um, you know, are something. it's something that Christians have been doing in their prayer life for centuries. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, we have our own version of this, and you know, as you said, we've been doing it for centuries. The practice of the presence of God, the sacrament of the present moment, these are all things that we have in our faith that teaches us that we're supposed to stay, stay in the present moment because that's where God is, the God who dwells within us as, as by virtue of our baptism when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. But he's always in the present, so we need to get into the present, but we're not. You know, we tend to be floating all over the place, you know, anxious forethought or we're dwelling on the past or, or whatever, but we, we don't tend to stay in that present moment. And all we really need to do is look within to the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and, and to want to be present to him and make ourselves present to him. And he, of course, gives us the grace to do that. So you really don't need these tactics. The mindfulness tactics, which are, are based in Buddhism, this is where they come from. The, the very popular uh, mindfulness that you're referring to now, that derives from the Buddhist tradition. It is a seventh step in the Noble um, Eightfold Path, which is uh, Buddhists believe is a process that leads to awakening to one's true nature. They know they call it right mindfulness. So it's kind of like it, it, it's it's very much in contrast, I suppose, with how we want to live out our Christian faith in terms faith in terms of its inward looking rather than kind of outward looking. Exactly, exactly. It's all about the self rather than, you know, our form is all about God and finding our God, being present to our God within us. That is not, um, it has nothing to do with uh, just looking at yourself and your own nature. It's it's uh, the exact opposite of that, as a matter of fact, exact opposite. So if we acknowledge then, Susan, that, you know, with the frenetic pace of life nowadays, that we do need this time to be silent and to stop. Um, and and then what we do next is is uh, is important. In other words, um, say, for example, we can meditate, but what we're meditating on is what's really important, right? Absolutely. And, and that's that's what we should be doing. And rather than adopting these these different methods, now keep in mind that the mindfulness that's so popular out there, the mindfulness that's in schools, the mindfulness that psychologists are using, isn't just this harmless, oh, let's learn how to focus on the present moment. That's what it, it looks like on the surface, but what they don't tell you until you get involved in it is that they're using Buddhist meditation techniques in order to help you to, to focus. So in other words, we would, we would rely on our prayer to the Holy Spirit. They're relying on Buddhist meditation techniques, such as breathing space meditation and body scan meditation. And these types of prayer techniques can be problematic, um, and especially if, if the Christian begins to adopt them and integrate them into our own prayer life. So how can, we be mindful, prayer, or how can we be mindful, for want of a better word, in a Christian way? Well, we'd we be mindful in a Christian way by by uh, calling upon the Holy Spirit and asking him for the grace to please be able to be present in the present moment and help me, Lord, to focus on you. You know, we, we read that in Scripture, that it's the Holy Spirit, really, who does the praying within us. And we always have to remember that Christian prayer is a dialogue with God. It's a back and forth. God does speak with, to us in prayer. He speaks to us in a lot of different ways. We just have to learn how to hear him. And we hear him in, say, sermons that we might hear in our church services. We, we hear him in perhaps the books that we're reading. We can hear him just for some casual comment out on the street from an everyday person. We have to learn how to hear the voice of our shepherd speaking to us from, from uh, within. And that's the Holy Spirit who gives us the grace to do that. He dwells within us by grace. And that's what we need to rely on is him. And not necessarily these techniques which, I just want to add this, are very problematic. Um, studies have shown that um, the mindfulness that's out there that everyone is saying is so great and cures all this stuff, there's very few of these studies are actually methodologically sound. In fact, Brown University, just a, not even a year ago, put out a call, you know, 15 researchers from all over the world saying, let's stop the runaway train. There's too much misinformation and poor methodology associated with these studies on mindfulness and that can lead to, to um, consumers being harmed, misled, or, you know, at the very least, disappointed when things don't turn out. So it's not really all, it's, it's more hype 
than science right now. What do you, and it needs to catch up. What do you think is, is the kind of harmful element? Is it that just focusing just totally on yourself uh, rather than kind of looking, looking outwards in a kind of more selfless way, I suppose? Oh, no, no, no. These are some of the dangers from, uh, from altered states. And, in fact, Willoughby uh, Britton, she's an assistant professor of psychiatry at um, Brown University. She actually studies this, the harmful effects of mindfulness. And um, it, it's putting yourself into an altered state, and that, of course, you think hypnosis as an altered state. There are um, psychological problems that can happen from that. That's why you should always do these things with a, with a professional, with an expert, a healthcare professional, um, because you have things like it'll start with insomnia, you could lose your focus, you can have really all kinds of issues that are they're known as post-hypnotic re- responses. These are also associated with these types of, of meditation techniques where you blank your mind and you sit there in this blankness for 20 minutes or a half an hour and that. There's a lot of problems associated with that. It doesn't get a lot of, of news. It doesn't make a lot of headlines. Nobody really wants to read about that. But they they very much are... Uh, very present out there, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of studies about that. And people need to be, become aware of the fact that when you put yourself in an altered state, you leave yourself vulnerable to any kind of influence you that talk, somebody might want to put on you. You talk, Susan, about the sacrament of the present moment. What is that, and what is your suggestion on an alternative then to mindfulness? Well, first of all, there are alternatives out there. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is one of them. This is like for psychological. People usually go for this mindfulness for psychological things. Uh, they are introducing it into education. I'm not sure why they're doing that because we're introducing it to children. But for us, a sacrament of the present moment just means that we take time during the day to stop and to look and smell the roses, so to speak. Look at where you are, what you're doing, what does it feel like for what you're doing, and give thanks and praise to God for that. This is the way, say, the Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, uh, this is the way they lived out their spirituality and achieved sanctity in their life. They They just kept their eyes focused on God and God's will for them in every moment of, of their life. And if you do that, if you really stop and you sit and say, what was God's will for me for this moment? Well, it's for me to be sitting in my study here and, and talking to you, you know, all the way over there in Ireland, and I just think it's such a beautiful country, and this was God's will for me right now in this moment. And then I think to myself, wow, you know, I praise you, Lord, and I thank you for having done that for me today. You really begin to see all the good stuff that the Lord has in store for you when you learn how to do that. You just stop. You just put a little stop in your day to just say, okay, where am I right now? I'm sitting in traffic. Okay, kind of pain in the neck, but there's something good on the radio. So thank you, Lord. You know, learn how to do that. That's, that's the sacrament of the present moment. When you do do that and you look for God in those moments, that then makes it into a kind of a sacrament. It's kind of bringing God into every day. And, and when you think about it like that and you're kind of breaking it down, it's, it's, it's things that have been proven to have a positive impact on things like stress and anxiety, showing gratitude, you know, stopping, as you say, and to, to smell the roses, which is something people don't stop to smell the roses. They stop to check their phone or they're constantly distracted and, and there's absolutely mm-hmm. no silence there. Um, what would you say then, Susan, just for, for people who are listening and they say, you know, look, I, I, I do I do find life, modern life, very stressful, you know, and, and so many people are suffering with anxiety nowadays. And even just, say, for example, sitting down, lighting a candle to pray for 10 minutes, it's it's hard to, to focus, to keep my attention. What's your advice there just to, to those kind of ordinary people? I would say that, that to learn how to, if you can't just sit still for 30 minutes and pray, Learn how to make the things of your day into a prayer. And do that by making those little pauses, like I said, to stop and say, well, what did God will for me in this moment? Look at this. This is pretty good. Or even if it's not a good thing, you know, this is what God will for me, and he's going to get me through this. Learn how to make prayer a part of your everyday life. People like to look at prayer as just something else to do, and it's not. God is our creator. He's got the plan for our life, and you need to keep your eyes on that source. Um, if you really want to get somewhere in life and you want your life to have meaning and purpose, you've got to keep your eyes on the one who's got your life plan. And and that's what I always tell people. He's not just an option. He's not just something that, you, you know, you, you do when you get time. You've you got to make time for him and especially to develop that relationship with him because then, you know, when it's a love relationship, you, it's not too hard to think about someone you love, is it? You've got to learn to develop that love relationship with Jesus and, and make it a more personal, intimate relationship with him. And then it will not be hard at all for you to take time to pray during the day. I pray, well, of course, I'm a third or a Carmelite, but 
we have to pray for 30 minutes of mental prayer, just mental prayer, no vocal, nothing else, just mental prayer every single day. And, boy, I'll tell you what, when you do that, you get really, really close to the Lord. You really get to know who he is. When you, when you sit there with him one-on-one, you vent, you say, look, I'm sick and tired of this. This happened to me. And, blah, blah, blah. and you just sit there with with him. You don't have to blank your mind. And it's interesting that you should bring just that point up, because I was just thinking, have we just forgotten the simplicity of prayer? Because all of this talk about mindfulness is trying to help partially to ease people's stress and anxieties. Have we forgotten the simplicity of, hey, do you know what, when you're praying in, in a quiet, simple way, it, it is also about giving God over your worries, your stresses, saying, Lord, you know, help me with this. Have we forgotten the, the kind of basic wisdom of prayer? Exactly, and it's like if you're going to spend 20 minutes um, with God or whatever, why spend it 20 minutes blanking your mind when you can spend it 20 minutes with someone who can take care of your problems, is what I always say. I mean, you can blank your mind all you want, but when you get done blanking your mind, you're going to still have all your problems. When the Christian sits down and gives their problems over to the Lord, they know there's somebody up there who is going to answer them. He's going to do something about it. We all know that he does, and and that's the difference here. Why spend your time just sitting there in this blank, you know, hyper-focused awareness on, you know, how your feet feel sitting on the floor, you know? Why spend your time doing that when you can spend your time saying, you know what, Lord, I need help with this, please, you know? And you, you really feel it gives you hope. You know that he hears your prayers, and, and you just you have so much more hope than if you just sit there with this empty head, which is really what the, the different Eastern forms of meditation are. And I mean, I'm not, you know... Dissing them, but for the Christian, we do have our own way of doing it, and and um, it works. It, it really works. does well, work. Thanks so much for that very interesting and illuminating conversation. That was Susan Brink- Brinkman there. She's an award-winning journalist and also author of a book called A Catholic Guide to Mindfulness, and you can get that now on Amazon. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.